written in, in church history class. And we're talking about the age of revolution, specifically stuff that's going on post-Civil War. Um, so I promised when we ended last that we would be talking about the church and specifically Henry Egley baptizing woman. That's where we ended last week. Um, I hoped to actually talk about Henry Egley. Spoilers! <laughs> Spoilers! Hush now! Okay, so Henry Egley. Now, when I said this, I was, I was talking to Sarah last week after class, and she's like, oh, you baptized a woman. I'm like, no, that's not, the, that's not the part of the sentence that's the problem. The Amish have never been known for specifically flexing with things a lot. You know, they're, they're not real big on, on new and improved ideas, and hey, yeah, let's do that differently, right? Sometimes that gets colorful in particular. I mean, sometimes you can picture, oh, they don't want to use electricity. Well, that's because they don't want to be beholden to the state. It's not that they're against technology. But there was a time in 1854 where a German-born Ohio, German Ohio resident, Heinrich Henry Egley, was ordained as a deacon. He's a preacher in the Amish church. So I, I know he doesn't look Amish, but you're going to have to hold on. Interestingly, um, that's also the year after he had this big illness that he found Jesus, which you, from, a, from a modern evangelical context, we tend to sit there and go, well, how would you be a preacher in a church if you've not been converted? Again, that's kind of a modern evangelical take on it. There's still a lot of churches in the United States, even in the United States today, much less Europe or other places, where the idea of having a conversion experience, why that's... What is that? Why, why are you even bringing that up? What does that have to do with anything? Why does that have anything to do with being a minister? He suddenly realized, as he read through scripture, as he was praying through his illness, that he ought to have some sort of personal relationship with Christ. It's not enough just that he was born Amish and grew up Amish and always went to an Amish church. That doesn't make you a Christian. It just makes you Amish-like, Amishy, but it doesn't make you a Christian. And so he's like, you know, I really think, as I look at scripture, I need to make a decision to follow Christ. Does that track with you guys, the idea of having to make a punctiliar decision? Yeah. Some of his congregation said, that's awesome. Wow, I never thought about that before. And he would read them scripture after scripture about the fact that you need to make a decision. You move from death to life. You're not just born a Christian. You can't just be raised in the church and think that you have eternal life. It doesn't work like that. And so the idea that you would have a relationship with God, there are a lot of people in this congregation who are like, this is mind-blowing. But it's scriptural. And so people were converting right and left. Can you, can you, can you hear a but coming? Okay, but there were others that were really messed up by this. Why? Why would you be messed up? They've their entire lives. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm Amish, I'm a Christian, and now you're telling me I'm not a Christian? We're the holy people, and you're telling us that there's something wrong with us? Well, and then they would look back to past generations that have passed away. Well, what does that mean for my grandma? What does that mean for my great-grandparents? Oh, yeah, okay. We'll actually chat about this a little bit in the service. Oh, detail schmetails. What does that say about the people I like? Are you dissing my entire lineage? It's like, stop and think about this. Because the, the Amish elders are like, wait, if you're telling people that it's not enough just to be holy, come on in, guys, take a seat. There's like whole chairs. Did um, <laughs> you actually honestly have to personally convert? Then that, there must, being Amish must not just be enough in and of itself. And we keep teaching people that being Amish is enough. 
Which is ironic when you think about it, because that was Menno Simon's whole stinking point. If you remember back in 1536, he was a Catholic priest who actually read the Bible, which was unique in 1536. There's a handful, if you remember, a handful of Catholic priests that actually started reading it, like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Menno Simons. They all went, have you read this thing? I think we're doing everything wrong. Menno Simons was one of these guys. And one of his big things was, wait, you... You have to, you can't just lean on tradition. You have to look at scripture, and you have to have some sort of personal relationship. I mean, he thought even even Luther and the Calvinists were leaning too much on tradition, because you really have to own this from a biblical standpoint. Now, I will say that it was also filtered through the theology of Jacob Amon, which is why you get the Amish, right? Yeah, it's a particular brand of Mennonites. When we say the word Mennonite, a lot of people we just automatically kind of get this mental picture of Amish from an American standpoint, which is a very narrow brand of Mennonite. But Amon said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to kind of break away from the rest of the Mennonites because we think the Mennonites are too liberal. You know, that whole, go back to scripture and have a personal relationship with Christ, no, still too broad. To Amon, to be a really good Christian, you have to separate from the sinful world. You have to separate from its fashions. You have to separate from its... Warfare, you have to separate from its politics, you have to separate from its culture, you have to separate completely. And it's the separation itself, right? It's the separation itself that becomes the focal point. Because, as we talked about last week in, in, the, in the service, anybody who's ever talked to a teenage Mennonite or teenage Amish kid, or who's ever had to sit through the movie the, the Village, will tell you that if you can just separate away, all the sin goes away, right? Because it's not like you take a sinful nature with you into your little enclave of holy people. Okay, yes, yes, you do. That's yeah, yeah. You, you still take it with you. You have to deal with that. Anyway, so 1854, Egley has risen to the position of bishop now, and there's there are two kinds of Amish in in this area: those who really like Egley and like what he's saying, and those who really, really don't like Egley and what he's saying. Um, He's this young rebel rouser. He's causing all sorts of problems. He's talking about crazy stuff like personal regeneration, whatever that is. He just needs to settle down, have a farm, be a good Amish guy. Further ruffles feathers by beginning to teach that the Christians have a responsibility to tell other people this stuff. It's not enough just that we sit in a little holy huddle. We need to, yeah, come on out and sit in the church. We need to make sure that we are actually talking to non-Christians about this stuff. Now, can you picture the Amish? Pardon? Yeah, because the Amish are extremely, often extremely very nice people, very generous people. Why don't they reach out? Why are If they genuinely think this is important, why don't Amish make more of a deal of it by reaching out to non-Christians? Anybody know? Because if you enter their area, you bring your sinful nature with you. There's that. Why don't you take a, a bar of soap into a pig trough and try to wash the pigs in the pig trough? They're still sitting there in the mud, right? It's pointless. Right? If somebody's going to be saved, they need to be brought into a sinless environment so that they are not sinful anymore. So the idea of me infecting our community by reaching out to somebody outside of our Amish community, while they're still outside of our Amish community, well, it's just pointless. I might as well just focus on perfecting the people here rather than reaching out trying to wash a pig in the mud. That reminds me a little bit of Apostolic. 
Um, yes, actually, somewhat. Some of the same rationales. But then the biggest problem came in 1865 when he's asked by a young wife in his congregation to baptize her. Again. And that's the tricky bit. Now, if you remember, the whole point of the Anabaptists, meaning re-baptizers, right? Even though that's, their opponents called them re-baptizers. They didn't think of themselves as re-baptizers because they said baptism, to be biblically valid, has to include repentance. That's, it's always repent and be baptized. Nobody's ever baptized in Scripture unless they've made a personal decision to be baptized. Therefore, any baptism that you weren't personally involved with, that you didn't have personal repentance in, it's just getting moist. It ain't real baptism. It was a bath. It was a shower. You know, whatever. And so to them, that they were baptizing believers was not re-baptism. It's, it's actual baptism. It's, you know, doing it the right way. But their opponents go, oh, they're re-baptizing people. The Anabaptists are like, no, we're finally baptizing people. Anyway, so only believers could be baptized and so they were happily willing to baptize adults or teenagers or anybody, even those who have been baptized as infants, so long as they're believers. Because it's not infant baptism versus adult baptism. It's infant baptism versus believer's baptism. That's the Anabaptist idea, okay? Okay. The wife hadn't just been baptized as an infant. She'd been baptized when she got married. Because her husband wanted her to be part of the Amish community, and you couldn't be part of the Amish community unless you'd been baptized. So to placate her husband and to join the Amish community, she got baptized. It didn't mean anything to her. She didn't believe anything about it. She just did it because that's what she was supposed to do. Then she sat under Egley's teachings and heard about personal regeneration. She gave her heart to the Lord. Then she read in Scripture about the people who give their heart to the Lord, and one of the things they should do is repent and... So here's the tricky thing. You're ugly. Teaching the crucial importance of personal regeneration. And specifically talking about being part of a church that was founded on, if you weren't baptized with repentance before, it never really was baptism. What do you do? It's tricky. Because nobody had ever really done that before. Even That's the thing. Maybe, maybe, is just, just walk around to the rain a little bit. <laughs> Even Blaubach is like, oh, no, you, you don't baptize somebody who's already been baptized. You only baptize people that, you know, got baptized as infants and it didn't really mean anything. This is new territory. What do you do? So he prayed about it and he chewed on it and he's just like, I think I should baptize her. It just makes sense because... The whole point is that you're not baptized until you're baptized by for repentance and she'll just now repent it. Okay. But okay, like a, this is the last time we're doing this for you. By the way, this makes my wife like the ultimate Anabaptist because she was baptized as a teenager because her stepdad forced it on her and, and really encouraged her to do it. And so to placate her family, she went to church and got baptized. It didn't mean anything to her. And then in college, when she kind of dedicated, rededicated herself to the Lord, she wanted to get baptized. And there's one of those things I'm like, you happen to be dating a guy that understands this on account of Henry Egley. Anyway, this huge backlash. Egley's defrocked. Everybody's upset. He says, well, I'm just living out what it means to be an Anabaptist. This is what, this is what we're supposed to do, right? And I'm living out what it means
means to have a personal relationship with Christ. And the elders like, no, you've undermined everything it means to be Amish. Because you've said everybody else has been wrong. You have to understand, the ritual itself, the community itself, that's the key thing. And you have just undermined the community. You have just undermined the ritual by saying it's all about the individual and individual repentance. He's like, no, this is what Simon said. This is what Amon technically said. This is what the Bible says. A number of Amish agreed with him. And even though he didn't try to make a schism, he, he left, a lot of them left with him because they're like, this is, he's right. So, 1866, begins his own church for those who left with him, and they became derisively known as the Egli Amish. They're not just Amish, they're Egli Amish. His take To differentiate themselves from the problems that they saw of this isolating Amish church, they called themselves the defenseless Mennonites. They're like, no, no, we're not, you know, I don't even think we are Amish anymore, but we are Mennonites. So, Defenseless because, well, Mennonite because they still want to connect themselves with the larger movement, and defenseless because they're like, no, that whole Amish absolutely no warfare thing. No, we still want to hold on to that. 1949, group has grown. Uh, they realize the main focus isn't really on pacifism so much anymore. It's not that they don't believe in pacifism, but they realize that over time, it's become, the importance has become on on being evangelist to a lost world, of reaching out with the gospel. And so they needed to change their name. As defenseless men, nice, was just kind of confusing people. They're like, no, we want to connect ourselves with the evangelical movement that's going on here in the mid-20th century, and we want to be in the world, not of it, but in it. So they start calling themselves the Evangelical Mennonite Church, which is where I'm from, and Michael's from. This is, this is our background uh, of, of things. 2003, they decided that the word Mennonite confused people. Why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, everybody pictures us Amish. I don't know how many times I had to explain to a new roommate. They're like, oh, what church are you doing? Uh, I'm Jolton Mennonite. But you wear buttons. <laughs> you, you have a computer. You have a mustache. You know, what? You're not Amish. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. Well, I'm actually, stand up and exactly. It's like, yeah, it's, we're different. Anyway. So, to avoid confusion, they changed the name to the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, which is confusing on other levels. Because it, an amazing number of people go, oh, so can any evangelical church be part of that? You know, my Baptist church is part of the Fellowship of Evangelical No, it's actually, it's, it's actually a denomination. So you're evangelical. What exactly does that mean? Oh, man, we kept the wrong word. Anyway. <laughs> the Christian church, TM. Moving on, 1868. Fanny Crosby writes a hymn that hits it big, 1868. Oh, did we get a whoop? Did we get, who whooped? Okay. <laughs> this is just your day, isn't it? It's like, man, Emily and Crosby, this rules. All right. She's born in rural New York, spends her entire life blind. She says it's because a doctor put a mustard poultice on her eyes for an infection when she was like six weeks old, and it blinded her. But most common medical thinking today says that's probably, probably wouldn't have done that. It, 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 it probably didn't cause blindness. It maybe was congenital. But there's no way to know because at least since she was six weeks old, she, she couldn't see. It's possible that she came out of the womb not being able to see and nobody really noticed it until then. But point is, whatever caused it, she, she has absolutely no recollection of ever having seen anything her entire life. Nonetheless, memorizes huge chunks of scripture as a girl writes poetry and songs. In fact, she writes so much poetry that her school 
since you can't write poetry anymore. Now, part of it is, I mean, she's constantly making little ditties. I mean, everything, little couplets, all the stinking time. As a teacher, I can see where that might get old. <laughs> 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 yes! Picture that. Every, every writing assignment, every math problem, there's a little thingy that explains it. Okay, Fanny, just focus on the assignment, if you would, please. But then they get this respectful, respected visiting scholar that comes and says, ah, she's a prodigy. She will be a great poet at the school. Yes, she is. We're very proud of Fanny. You write your poetry. So she goes to church her whole life, but she personally accepts Jesus in 1850. Again, got to understand, just hanging out in a church building, just growing up in a church, doesn't make you automatically a Christian. She eventually figures out, even though she'd been memorizing large chunks of the Old Testament, she could like, recite the whole Torah you know, from memory. She was amazing. And then suddenly she's like, wait, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It never even dawned on me to do that. Changed her life after that. She'd already been making her name for herself by writing uh, lyrics for all sorts of popular music of the day. And her first published hymn was six years before this, called An Evening Hymn. But after that, she just kicks into gear. She collaborates with her pastors to write nearly 9,000 hymns in her lifetime. Yeah. So, one called, uh, in 1868, called Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Anybody familiar with that? Kind of a big one. Inspired by her outreach work with prisoners. And she's, you know, they're, they're, she's talking to the prisoners, and they're like, I hope that when Jesus is, is healing and saving people, he doesn't pass me by. She's like, well, I've got to, totally got to write a hymn about that. So, pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. So, I mean, it's poignant stuff. Follows that up a couple years later in 1872 with something called, To God Be the Glory. Again, kind of another biggie. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life as an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Then the next year, by Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. What a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of the Spirit, washed in his blood. Which actually doesn't rhyme with God, but fine. It's a great hymn. And depending on your dialect, maybe it does. Point is, those are some biggies. And she wrote like 8,997 more. Um, a lot of her stuff is actually very simple. Um, some of it is... Really, really, really simple, even simplistic. But there's this sincerity to it. There's this, this solid theology, solid biblicality, and this wow, this richness that touched so many people as, as they were singing it. That it, it just, again, picture if um, one of the most prolific top 40 songwriters that you knew, because she was writing most of the biggest hits in the eight they had biggest hits in the 1800s. They did. She was writing most of the biggest hits in the 1800s at this time. Picture if the biggest songwriters of modern time also wrote all sorts of new worship music. That's Fanny Crosby. And it affected a ton of people. She didn't write the music. She wrote the lyrics. Nonetheless, it's one goal. It was interesting. A visiting pastor once remarked, Miss Crosby, I think it's a great pity that the good master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, didn't give you sight. Yeah, I, I just I wish, I wish you could see. It just seems like such a pity. 
Anybody know what her response to that was? For <laughs> Michael sharing Did it you in know church. That I shared this in church <laughs> yes. a week ago, a few weeks ago. No, I didn't. Yeah. Well, there it's, now I feel silly. Okay, no, it's fine. She said, if at my birth I'd been able to have made one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be made blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. So, yes, all of you have apparently heard that before. But the, <laughs> I heard it before. But, but the idea of saying, This is Michael's day. This, this is Michael's day. This is all about the Michael. Okay, let's see if the next person is yours, too. But anyway. Uh, but just the idea of saying, this is the passion that she had for Christ, and this is this infectious passion that she had for Christ. It made all the difference in the world. Which, uh, which um, churches adopted? All of them. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm just surprised. I mean, some churches would be very much all around. Some, that's true. Uh, construction. Yeah. I mean, most churches have come around, to be honest. I don't know what kind of backlash there was at that particular time. Um, because she was such a media sensation that even some of the more, because I, I do know even some of the more conservative leaders were embracing her and want to get their picture taken with her kind of thing. So it's like, it, it might have been the sort of, again, to get her type of um, That's a photograph. Anyway, um, so my guess is that uh, she probably crossed a lot of those gender boundaries simply because everybody was singing their songs. And so uh, churches kind of felt silly if they didn't have But there's always going to be churches. Hard to picture. I know. I'm sorry. But wrap your head around this. There are always going to be some churches that they're always looking for the new thing. They're always looking for the new song because, you know, old songs are for old people. And maybe even harder to picture, there are always going to be some churches that resist the new songs <laughs> because... The old songs are better. Well, in fact, that's what I grew up with. So I, all that feeds into that. I'm sure that there were some churches like, oh, no, she's popular, but this new, fangled stuff, she doesn't. You, Funny moment, she's not actually Fanny Crosby. Um, she never was Fanny Crosby. She was born Francis Jane Van Crosby. So she grew up being Fanny Van Crosby. Not Fanny Crosby, but even beyond that, she married Alexander Van Alstyne in 1843, which meant that from 1843 until her death in 1915, she was Fanny Van Alstyne. In everything, in her entire life, she was Fanny Van Alstyne, except for how she signed her lyrics, because by the time, she, even by the time she got married, she was already getting famous for writing lyrics. So people always talk about Fanny Crosby. I'm like, eh, technically it's Fanny Van Crosby, or technically it's Fanny Van Alstyne. But you're not going to look in your hymnal and see, oh, this one was written by Fanny Van Alstyne. I wonder if she's any relation with Fanny Crosby. It's a little thing, but I love how people are like, yeah, I know all about Christopher Columbus. Go, yeah, his mom never called him that. What? Yeah, so. <laughs> all right. Carrie Nation. Michael? Okay. He has a hat <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is the end of Michael's morning, and somebody else will now enjoy the rest of the morning. Carrie Nation's husband died in 1869, which is kind of a big deal for Carrie Nation. Um, she grew up in a very strange household. Her mother was occasionally delusional, and her mom came to the conclusion that she might actually be Queen Victoria, which she wasn't. Um, 
She gave birth to their only daughter in 1868, named after her husband, and then he died in 1869 because he's a raging alcoholic, and he eventually killed himself with death. He was so charming, though. He was so charming, and a raging alcoholic. In fact, they were separated a little bit before she, got, she gave birth. So she actually asked him to move out. Think about this in 1868. She's like, you have to leave. I'm going to raise our daughter by myself if you don't get help. And then he dies. How's that going to affect Carrie? That's why she doesn't like alcohol. One of the main reasons she doesn't like alcohol. Um, she's, yeah, she's heartbroken, but she's mad. She's like, this is horrible. All across the United States, if you remember right before the Civil War, there was a major problem with alcoholism in the United States. Huge problem. But what combated that before the Civil War? Huge revival. Revival all across the United States. Thousands coming to know the Lord every day. And the only hiccup in that was we suddenly had a Civil War, which messed up the whole thing. And so that revival just, there was still outreach on the battlefield. There's still people coming to know the Lord. But that amazing, unheard of outreach stopped. So after the Civil War, all these disillusioned veterans come limping back home, and alcoholism becomes a rampant problem again in the United States. Massive, massive problem. And so she starts speaking publicly against alcohol, because she's like, this killed my husband, destroyed my family. And I'm not the only one. Why, well, I listen to Wanda here. Wanda gets up. Alcohol killed my husband, destroyed my family. Listen to Josephine over here. Alcohol. Killed my husband, destroyed my family. I mean, 
serious problem. She also began attending the seances of a bunch of spiritualists because she's so desperate to talk to her husband again. She missed him so terribly. She was angry with him, but she also saw him primarily as a victim of demon alcohol. Eventually, though, she started attending a local church of Christ, and the pastor told her that spiritualism is bad. It's an occult practice, and so she started speaking out against that. I include this not only because, well, it's part of who she was, but so what does this tell you about what does this tell you a little bit about Carrie? If you had to summarize this about Carrie from what you know from what we just said here, how would you describe her as a person, as a Christian? She's willing to accept that she doesn't know everything. Yep. That's a, okay, let's put that in the positive category. She's willing to no, I mean that's good, but that is, that's good. She's willing to accept that she doesn't know everything, and so she's willing to try different things, she's willing to seek out other answers. Okay, what would be the flip side of that in the negative category? She's very passionate. Yeah, actually, swayed is the word I was thinking of with that. But yeah, I mean, she's she can be swayed by things. Whatever she desperately feels this way, so this is true. She desperately feels this way. I hope this is true. Desperately feels this way. Oh, I'll go this way. They, I, I think Mark brought up a good balance, though. I mean, yes, she's open to saying. I don't assume that I understand everything completely, but the problem also with that is because I don't understand things, I just kind of go with what I, I felt at that particular moment. She's, she also tends to, whatever she feels, she, she is ultimately open to new ideas, but whatever she feels at any given moment, she's fairly certain about that. So it's like, I love this guy. He is amazing. He is so good. He is dead. Alcohol killed him. Alcohol is bad. I want to talk to him. Spiritualism is good. I love this, because I might be able to know spiritualism is bad. It's bad, and we need to not do... Not a lot of gray areas in Carrie Nation. Um, a lot of black and white, a lot of absolutes with things. Mikey Coyne, Carrie Nation. 1874, she married again to a writer, lawyer, minister, entrepreneur named David Nation, who's almost twice her age. She's 28, he's like 51, 52, something like that, when they got married. First year of their marriage, they would write gushy letters to one another, I think, because he was often out on the road trying to make money. Um, <laughs> after the first year or two of marriage, gushy comments kind of stopped, and eventually they realized they don't really love one another, they don't even really much like each other. Um, but luckily, neither of us is going to have to raise the children we had from our previous marriages by ourselves. So, I may not be in love, I may not even like you, but... At least you'll help me raise my kid. That's what marriage is, right? It was not uncommon back then, but even by their standards, this was considered a loveless marriage. So, David's frequently gone on long trips. Carrie starts running a hotel to make ends meet, refuses to carry alcohol. In fact, she even begins a local women's Christian temperance union in town. Now that I'm an established businesswoman, we're going to do something about all of this alcohol. 1890, she's leading the temperance union in protest against local saloons. They're singing temperance hymns. They're actually temperance hymns out there specifically about human alcohol and stuff. Outside of the thing, they're picketing outside of saloons. Guys walk into the saloons and she's like, devil worshiper, why don't you just give your heart to Satan? Like, I don't care. Go back in. Yeah. The bartenders go in and she says, good morning, destroyer of men's souls. 
Again, simple but passionate woman. And uh, so every, everything you tend to think of as Christians may be reacting a bit strongly even to what we might agree are evils of abortion clinics, that's Carrie Nation with salons. Now, if she had an incendiary device, she would be blowing up the salon. With every passing year, we got more and more militant. In 1900, she got a vision from God. God himself told her to go to Kiowa, Kansas, and physically attack the saloons there. Take rocks or whatever you can throw. Do whatever damage you possibly can. Because God, God, I'm telling you, abortion clinics. This is scary. This is so she took rocks with her. She threw them at the bottles of the various bars in town. Threw them at the bartenders. Again, she's a woman, so there's only so much that a guy felt like he could do to try to restrain her. And she's a six foot one, 180 pound woman with a very stern look on her face. <laughs> so it's like, with rocks in her hands. So what are you going to do? You're the bartender, do you go, uh, rush her? No. <laughs> no, I'm not rushing her. David suggested the next time she should just take an axe. Like, you know, just rocks, nothing, man. <laughs> Throw a rock, you know. You do some damage, but you don't have the rock anymore. Carrie replied, that is the most sensible thing you have said since I married you. <laughs> and so she picked up a hatchet and took it with her. From then on, she, she began what she called her hatchetations. Attacking saloons. She invented a word. I want you to use that word this week. Find a sentence where you can use the word hatchetation. I said, I'm going to hatchetation on you. Attacking saloons, doing as much damage as she could. You would be this guy. You know that. You're hiding behind the bar going, you frightened me greatly. Dangerous woman. She was tremendously proud of the fact that she was arrested 32 times in her ministry. Bear in mind, it only started in like 1900, when she's quite old. I see she was, uh, she was about 18, let's say, and 19, let's say, in 69. So, what would that be? 1920, 50? I mean, and so it went on for a little bit, but she was... She was at least 50 years old when she even started her agitations. So it's post 50 years old, arrested 32 times for disorderly conduct and breaking public property, private property. She became so famous for it that she was able to pay her fines by selling hatchets. Which I think is beautiful. She buys a five cent hatchet, signs it, and sells it for 20 bucks. Which is thinking beautiful. I love that. And people buy it. They love to have their little carried hatchet up on the wall. So they show up and they're like, yeah, we need to I don't doubt it. I've seen tons of pictures of her that where she signed the picture and things. So, you know, I, if you've seen my office, you know I have one of those. That's carried nation. eBay. Anyway. That's your appreciation. That's your appreciation. That's right. Dude. What? One more month until pastor appreciation, so eBay, baby. All right. She even applauded the assassination of uh, President McKinley in 1901 because she was certain, she was convinced he was a secret drinker. Well, clearly, n nobody ever saw him drink, but he got assassinated. Bad things happen to people who drink. 
So clearly, this is God giving him what he deserved, because that's what happens to people in there. Did I, did I mention that your mother and two of her siblings were bonkers, delusional things? Yeah. So this is Carrie. 1901, David divorced her. He cited desertion, because she's always off on her crusades, saying, I love this, in the, in the divorce papers, I married this woman because I needed someone to run my house. <laughs> and she's gone, so who needs her? He's very old now, isn't he? Yep. So he's uh, he's he's pretty aged at this point, yeah. Seventy to eighty. Uh huh. He just really didn't want to be married to Carrie anymore. I know. So Carrie continued to travel lecture circuit. She even went across. She went across to Europe, but Europe didn't like it as much. In America, she was all the rage. I mean, every there were some people that said she's right. Alcoholism is a horrible problem in our nation because alcoholism was a horrible problem in the nation. And there are other people who are like, oh, man, you got to see this. Oh, I totally disagree with everything she says, but, it, you know, it's like watching a train wreck. You know, you got to go see this. <laughs> she goes to England, and um, her whole demon liquor thing, I am not super educated, but I carry a hatchet. They kind of look at her and they're like, nope. I mean, there's like three or four people in England going, eh, Monica rocks. And that's about it. You know, nobody else really gets it. And they throw fruit at her and vegetables and things, and she goes home very unhappy. Yes, they do. I mean, it's not that they don't have problems with alcoholism, but there isn't this bizarre mystique surrounding alcoholism, the alcohol that we tend to have here in the United States. Um, she subsisted on ticket sales to her lectures, but also on the sales of hatchets and nifty photographs like this. Where she she signs it saying "Carry a Nation Home Defender." Yeah. So I I, I, I googled to try to find are there, can I find any of these pictures? I found like a gazillion of these pictures. There are just a um, ton of them floating around and things. Uh, several different uh, poses. Yeah. Did you say doesn't the isn't the picture of Richards the one that was hit by one of her hatches? The picture. The picture of Richards down. I don't know. I don't go to bars. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, I would not be at all surprised. Is it? Have you been? I haven't been in Richard, so I don't know. What's it called? I, Richard's I, Bar? No. Okay, I'm a church. Everybody, we're going to Richard's Bar. But Sunday school. No, seriously, well, she's got a picture. Right, and part of the problem is it has naked ladies on it. Okay. So that's why I threw that. Don't. Don't. Okay, so so there's a picture that has a hatchet wound in it from Terry Nation. Yeah, they they tried to be repaired, but uh, that's the one that she was after. Oh my goodness. Okay. 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 Frolicking nymphs. Okay. Anyway, okay, terrifying. I really do kind of want to cut out Richard Townsend. <laughs> Because I'm a pastor. Wait, this comes out bad. Anyway. <laughs> but yes, that was that was Carrie Nation in a nutshell. Now, in large part due to her efforts, 1919, eight years after she died, the United States enacted the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, transport, or importation of intoxicating liquors throughout the country. There was a genuine problem with alcoholism in the United States, and eight years after she dies, well, actually seven years after she dies, they're 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 proposing it and. In January of 1919, they actually get prohibition in place. 
when we think about prohibition, you don't normally think about it that early because we normally think about the end of prohibition. But yeah, it starts here, and in law, even, even a lot of the lawmakers were citing Carrie Nation and her temperance crusade. So one arguably nutty woman brought about prohibition, which worked great, right? No. No, what are you saying? I was going to say, it, it touched on something that I don't know if it's a lot of And broken homes, and having to raise their kids either literally or effectively alone. So, in fact, when we were talking about the alcoholism before the war, remember I showed you some some uh, ads and things from and cartoons from newspapers about women saying, "You know, vote dry because it's destroying my household." Um, so yeah, there were a whole lot of factors that came into play, societal factors as well. But much like with before the Civil War, um, even when the country tends to look at stuff and see problems, we either don't know what to do with it, or we don't know how to do anything with it. So it usually takes some sort of hook, whether it's a celebrity now endorses changing this this way, or and has a hatchet, um, or that. Um, that you have a massive revival of things. Even if you sit around going, yeah, maybe we shouldn't drink over a quart of strong alcohol a day in addition to our beer. It was like, you might all see that, but you don't do anything about it until there's this massive revival. You might say something about it, you don't do anything about it until it's crazy. Battle axe, in every sense of the word, goes and starts smashing things up. Now, is prohibition the right thing? Again, we come back to, A, it's really hard to prohibit something once it's become culturally ingrained. Works ingrained. Number two, how many times have you heard me say, which is better, to legislate people's behaviors so that they approximate Christianity, or to change people's hearts so that they are healthier and live out Christianity? You can do this from the outside in. It usually doesn't work well. Technically, did Carrie Nation's efforts do an amazing job of, of halting the alcoholism epidemic? Yes, actually, it did. The alcoholism epidemic really got stymied here with this. The, the mass majority of people in the in the United States were no longer alcoholics. Where before this, the majority of people in the United States were alcoholics. Arguably, prohibition created organized crime, though, too. So, I mean, there's uh, pros and cons to everything. Nothing is ever... But nothing is ever simple with real life, and history is just real life, the good parts version, right? Okay. Yes. All right. 1869, I'm moving on. 1869, First Vatican Council convened. They didn't call it the First Vatican Council, they just called it the Vatican Council. But I have to call it the First Vatican Council because there was Vatican II in the 1960s. But First Vatican Council is convened. Called by Pope Pius IX, the council seemed first to be extremely administrative. They were just doing a lot of plotting things. In fact, a lot of the people in attendance were complaining that it was boring and hot. It's a little warm in here right now, too. But they were complaining, oh, this isn't any good. But Pius is this consummate politician, and he's always thinking. So he had some specific issues that he wanted to address nestled in there. He's all about the papal bulls. Remember when we talked about these? Paper bulls, these letters that the Pope gets to write to say, here's really how I think we should do things. I guess they did. 
He wrote six bulls against the popularity of the Masonic Lodge, which he saw as heretical. Why did the Pope see the Masonic Lodge as heretical? Um, no, that's why some Baptists are the, who would say that. Well, Well, didn't they, uh, as I remember, didn't they see the high poopah or whatever they heard them worshiping, or um, something else other than the grand poopah? Yep. Well, okay, there's a grand poopah, that's right, poopa. in some lodges, but in, the, in, the, um, in, in like the Masonic Lodge, um, there are some Masonic Lodges that incorporate, well, even, even in some of the liturgy they talk about, whether you're worshiping Yahweh or Baal or Osiris, it doesn't really matter as long as you're worshiping an overarching deity. Not really Pius' problem. Uh, a lot of my problem with the Masonic Lodge is what I just said there about the different gods, but also the fact that they will actually tell people in their funeral service, you will go to heaven because you were such a good Mason. That's how you're being entry into heaven. Things. He didn't like it because they talked about religion but didn't put it under the Pope. The Pope is in charge of all religion. And the Masonic Lodge didn't do that. This feud got more colorful when the Masonic Lodge says, no, Pius is actually my <laughs> Masonic Lodge starts passing around this rumor that Pius is actually a Mason, but is wearing a beard by saying, you know, Masons are horrible. Like, yeah, right. You're a Mason. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And the louder he said, no, I'm not. The more that I think I've proved my point now. You got to come out of the closet, Pope. You're a Mason. No, I'm not a Mason. There's still books, there's still websites out there that say, you know, looks like he might have actually been amazing. Secondly, Catholic Church went on a warpath against all sorts of fraternal organizations, anything like the Lodge. Unfortunately, by then, it had become like all the rage. Everybody, anybody is in a Lodge somewhere. So what do you do? 1882, Father Michael McGivney decided to make a Catholic version of it. We're going to have our own fraternal organization, just like the Masonic Lodge, and we're going to call it the Knights of Columbus. That's right, man. Columbus is a good Catholic. And people like Columbus because they discovered the New World. That's it. We're Knights of Columbus. Much like the Masons, the Knights of Columbus hold ritualized meetings. They, they do community service. They wear silly hats. They do different things. That's, that's what they do. They do it because they're trying to be like the Masonic Lodge. But they make sure that they're very much under the authority of the Pope. It's kind of a big deal. He also wrote a couple. Yeah, well, He also wrote several bulls declaring that Mary is not only co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? In what capacity? Co-mediator. That's right. In salvation, we're saved not only by the work of Christ on the cross, but the work of Mary, who's seated on her throne as the Queen of Heaven. Because there's a king, there's a king of heaven, so you need a queen of heaven. So she and God sit on the throne, just like any medieval monarch, right? That's the way that works. And in order for her to have given birth to a son like Jesus, she has to have been immaculately conceived. What is the immaculate conception? She is without sin from from the womb. She is she alone of all human beings was immaculate, without sin, even in the womb, and had been sinless through her entire life. Didn't we, didn't we talk about this before? Yeah. Then there's the argument that goes the person that had her is sinless and the person that had that person is sinless. Yep. Yep, that is, that is a 
sect. Um, but yeah, so he didn't invent these doctrines. Um, I, I was looking for, for a picture, and I, I ran across this uh, uh, on a Catholic website about a prayer to Mary. Oh, Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. So since you have never sinned, you can understand this. In fact, um, oh, buddy, I've lost my own thing. Okay, in fact, I'll say it this way. Um, in some ways, she's even better than Jesus because where Jesus was without sin because he was half divine, she was without sin because she was blessed by God. And, and so, uh, so he has to kind of subsume himself to her, which is why he um, is the prince of heaven and she's the queen of heaven. According to Catholic thinking, uh, remember the fifth commandment, or Catholic, the fourth commandment, you're supposed to honor your father and mother. Therefore, Jesus has to honor his mother, not the other way around. So she's the queen of heaven, and he is eternally the baby Jesus, a prince in heaven. Right? That's the way that works. By the way, yes, there, there was a movement back in the day to declare that Mary also had to have been miraculously born of a virgin in order to be immaculately conceived. Which means that Anne had to have a miraculous birth of Mary. But folks like Benedict the Fourteenth said, no, 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 too far, too far. No, nope, nothing about that in scripture. I'll take the Immaculate Conception. Wait, what? There's nothing about that in scripture, but Mary sinless? Yeah, I'll take the I'll take the Immaculate Conception, okay, but that she was born miraculously. Because because Benedict's like, no, that infringes on the whole Jesus miraculous birth thing. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, no, no. I'm willing to give her immaculate conception and sinlessness, but we're not taking away the virgin birth. Okay. Pius is not the only one to have said this. People, like you just said, have been saying this for a while, but he wanted to move past teaching that she was a sinless mediatrix. He wanted to make it church dogma. And that's an official word in the Catholic Church. It means you can't question this anymore. This is not open for discussion. This is the teaching of the church. So you got to do that. At this Vatican Council, he pressed to make it unquestionable to venerate Mary in this way. You have to believe that she was sinless, and you have to believe that she was co-mediatrix with Christ. You have to believe that she's the Queen of Heaven, sitting next to the Father, co-regency. He pointed out even Irenaeus connected Mary with Eve, back when Eve was sinless. Therefore, clearly, she's the new Eve to Jesus' new Adam, presenting perfect examples of how we were meant to be back in Eden. Yes, that can go to weird places. He's not going there. He's just saying clearly, she's the new Eve and Jesus is the new Adam. Just like Paul said, Jesus is the new Adam. Besides, how could even Jesus approach the stern and angry father at the throne? He has to be able to go through the warm and nurturing mother. Right? But it makes sense, given how he's looking at it, doesn't it? It does make logical sense. He's starting out with the wrong... He's starting out with 47 of the wrong principles, but yes. Anyway, to seal the deal, he pushed for another thing to be dogged by. Papal infallibility. Now, it is, isn't it? Now, they, again, they've been talking about this for a while, but now it's going to become dogma, unquestionable. That's the doctrine. I love this painting. God himself shining a light on the Pope as he sits on the papal throne. This is the doctrine that says that when the Pope sits on his throne, everything he says is unquestionably true since he is vicariously Christ at that moment. The Latin can be, we oftentimes will translate the Latin as the vicar of Christ, 
but the Latin could also be translated vicariously, Christ, which is what vicar means. It's your vicarious standing place. Anyway, the argument, the argument goes like this. The first condition of salvation is to maintain the rule of true faith. This is what they said at the First Vatican Council, right? First condition of salvation is that you actually follow Christ's teachings. So to be a Christian, you have to follow the correct doctrines. And according to Matthew 16, 18, Jesus placed all authority for the proper rule of the church on the Peter. He said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Look, in the painting, he's even got keys, right? Therefore, anything Peter says is automatically correct. It's inconceivable that Peter could ever err in doctrine since Christ promised to preserve the church from error. What? It's not like Paul could ever tell Peter he's doing something wrong. Paul wasn't the Pope. Peter's the Pope. Paul didn't get the keys of the kingdom. Peter did. So ironically, to a lot of popes, Paul's a bad guy. Because Paul stood against Peter and things. Which is interesting, because how many times did Martin Luther come up and go, have you read Paul? Have you read this whole thing about it's not by works, it's by faith? Have you read any of this stuff? And there were actually popes that said, but that's Paul. Our guy's Peter. How about Jesus saying, get that's before. That's before. Peter ended up in Rome, meaning he's the first Roman bishop, i.e. the first pope, and therefore, another point here, the Holy Roman Church possesses the supreme and full primacy and principality over the entire Catholic Church, right? Clearly, because Peter was the first Roman bishop, and he was the one that got the keys of the kingdom, therefore Rome is in charge of the whole church. It's patently obvious. Clearly, church, every church everywhere must be under the authority of Rome. If you remember, if you go, haven't we talked about Pius IX before? Yes, he's the guy that wrote that letter to the uh, epistle to the Easterners, offering peace and reconciliation to the Eastern churches, if they would just place themselves under the authority of Rome. And the Eastern churches said, no. And he was shocked. He went, I don't get you. You're so divisive. Thus, Rome must never be able to err in its doctrines, since Jesus himself put Rome in charge of the whole church. And he preserves the church. Clear as day. Another quote. The Roman Pope is the true vicar of Christ, the head of the whole church, and the father and teacher of all Christians. To him was committed in blessed Peter, by our Lord Jesus Christ, the full power of tending, ruling, and governing the whole church. Therefore, I'm just going to have to read the quote. Sorry. Faithful adhering, faithfully adhering to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, to the glory of God our Savior, for the exaltation of the Catholic religion and the salvation of the Christian people with the approval of the sacred council, we teach and define as divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, literally sitting on the throne, because that's what ex cathedra, he's speaking from the throne. That's what that word, that phrase means. When, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. At that moment, he possesses, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, he possesses that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are themselves, of themselves, and not by the consent of the church. So, he doesn't have to get the consent of the church by itself, the fact that he says this. They are irreformable. Once he dictates them, you cannot ever change them. So then, should anyone, which God forbid, have the temerity to reject this definition of ours, let it be enough. Everything the Pope says 
That's cathedral. Cannot be questioned or changed. Yes? Has any pope said anything else? Yes. Anyway, so it should be noted, not every, yes. So it should be noted, not everybody in attendance actually liked this. Um, Cardinal Guidi, the Archbishop of Bologna, Bologna. Uh, it's pronounced Bologna. I grew up pronouncing that Bologna. No, the Archbishop of Bologna said, actually, you know, we want to clarify that the Pope will first listen to the Council of the Bishops manifesting the tradition of the churches. Let's, let's make it clear. I'll support this, but as long as we say, the Pope is always going to make sure it bounce things off of other leaders and to take church tradition into account before we say things are irreformable. Pope's retort is instantly famous. I am the tradition. First, you've got to take tradition into account, right? I'm the Pope. I am the tradition. A little bit. Which is why Italy the next year declared war on the Papal States. <laughs> you remember the Papal States, right? That little group of things, the purple over there, the Pope is in charge of. He has not only religious control over, but political authority over. He is the king of that area. King Vittorio Emmanuel II of Sardinia was sick of dealing with this pope. He said, you are so annoying. You keep changing the constitution so that everything has to go through your office. Everything I do has to go through your office. Everywhere in all of Christendom has to go through enough of the pope. He's been fighting a series of wars of unification. He's like, we need to be one peninsula all together including fighting the papal armies on several occasions, because the Pope has armies. And so, the, so uh, in 1870, Vittorio's forces invaded Rome. Italy invaded Rome. It's just a different world, man. <laughs> and dissolved the papal states forever. There is no papal states. They left in the Vatican. That's it. You get Vatican City. That's the deal. You get to stay within the Vatican Palace, but you will never again try to exercise political authority in the world. You want to be the head of the, of, the, of the church? That's great. But the deal you make here, we will leave you the Vatican and we will leave you the head of the church if that's all you want. And we agree to that. Next, get the... The Vatican City was a sovereign state city? Yep, that's it. You just get that. Oh, okay. You never try to do anything else with that. So Pius referred to himself as the captive of the Vatican. I'm the prisoner of the Vatican. So, are there any commonalities? Is there anything that you can see going on today as we as we finish up? Any? How would you describe the state of things going on post-Civil War? Anything you want to draw attention to? Oh, yeah. Arguably, there has been for a while. I mean, there have been a number of different cults and weird things that have been popping up for the last 20 years. But, but definitely after the Civil War, there's a lot of people going, I don't know what to think. So people stepping in. Yeah, Michael. Describing the alcoholism and such, that's at least really similar to what happened to veterans coming back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And even today, a lot of our veterans. And we're going to find this after World War One. That's a huge issue. Uh, which is another reason why, in 1919, they finally said, okay, we've got to prohibit this. Because coming back in 1918 from World War I, guys were very messed up and were trying to opiate themselves from the pain. Okay, what else? I guess I find it interesting that there was 
all the revival before the Lord and what happened to all those people that, you know, were following their faith Some of them got killed. Some of them held on to their faith, but the but the culture kind of crumbled around them. Others, it's the 9-11 effect. If you remember, huge upsurge in church attendance after 9-11. And within a couple of months, it, the church attendance actually was lower than it was before 9-11. And the exit interview said, we were looking for something different. We thought God would have something different. Clearly, he doesn't. Uh, there's nothing different in those churches now, really. So you got this wonderful big boom, and America is, is growing, and America is, is reaching across the seas, and America is becoming Christians in droves, and then America fights America. Bloodiest conflict anybody's ever seen anywhere. Where was God in that? Well, and that was something I was thinking about, about with all this revival, if this revival was sticking, how, how did we find ourselves in a place where a simple that was that was earlier lessons because 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 again people were changing but the culture itself was kind of on this path and once you got to the crux point of well what are you unwilling to change on that's what ultimately came to to the forefront that became the most important part one thing and there's a lot of different things you can point to but one thing I found interesting is the Amish are like no everything will work we can remove sin if we just do this we can just do this if carrying issues we can just remove alcohol. And the country goes, yeah, that's it, prohibit alcohol. Then everything will be okay. The, uh, the Pope says, okay, if we can just make this dogma and unquestionable, then the church will rise to the forefront. Everything will be okay. Now, everything will be okay if we just keep the Pope stuck in the palace. If we just fix this thing, if we just control this social element, everything will be okay. Has that ever worked in history? Doesn't mean you can't and shouldn't work on social issues. This means, again, what's the heart of it? Are you dealing with what's really at the core of the issues? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that everything that's come before us informs where we are right now. Help us, Lord, to have the wisdom to be able to see what's come before, to see where we've stepped as a as a people, as a species before to understand why we went there. And Lord, give us the wisdom to know where to step next. In Jesus' name, amen.